Hello and welcome to Women Health First, a weekly health information and promotion series. I am your host, Nahila Ayeva, and with me today is Dr. Ramatu Mohamed, Vice President of our Public Health WASH program, WASH, Water, Sanitation, and Hygienic. We are joined with a special guest, very special guest, Dr. Ujuka Ilowabuchi, Women Healthcare Specialist, who is going to you know, present on cervical cancer and his uh, preventive measures. Without further ado, Dr. Mohamed, please introduce and welcome our special guest. Dr. Ilowabuchi is uh, providing incredible, incredible health care services to women in our communities and associates in Snellville, Georgia. Um, she did have her Bachelor of Science with honor in biochemistry at the University of New York in 2007. And she holds the Doctor of Medicine from Mount Senior School of Medicine, New York in 2011. Furthermore, Dr. Ilao Bucci successfully completed her residency in gynecology and obstetrics in Emory School, um, University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia in 2015. She is also a mother, a physician, and a specialist in women's health. She's currently working with, um, as I had mentioned earlier, with the Gwinnett OBGYN Associates, and she is a gynecologist. She, she believes that it is a privilege to care for women at all stages of their lives. As a private practice physician, she has the unique opportunity to form lasting relationships with her patients through adolescent, young adulthood, childbearing years and beyond. Her practice is Gwinnett OBGYN Associates and serves women of the Gwinnett County and greater Atlanta area. In addition, she has a hospital privilege in Eastside Medical Center, Snellville, Georgia. Um, please welcome Dr. Ilao Bucci to our program. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Mohammed, for that nice introduction. Thank you, um, Sister Nahila, for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here and to speak with everyone and just have a nice discussion. I'm hoping this is interactive as we talk about um, cervical cancer, which is an extremely important condition that um, affects women across the world, even here in the United States. And, and I think for this condition, thankfully, um, there's lots that we know about it, prevention, treatment. So without further ado, let's get into it. So I titled the talk, um, let's talk about pap smear. So cervical cancer, an overview of screening, prevention, um, treatment. So cervical cancer is, one, is the third most common gynecologic cancer diagnosis. So it follows behind ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, um, and it's a leading cause of death among women when it comes to GYN cancers. Ovarian cancer tops the list. However, this one follows closely behind, especially in um, developing countries. For us here in the United States, we're blessed in that we have well-established screening guidelines, um, which I'm gonna get into. But unfortunately from some of us from our home countries, we're all, I know Dr. Mohammed and I are originally from Nigeria. Um, we can't necessarily say the same. There, things are improving and there's more awareness now, but definitely there is um, lots of room to grow in terms of awareness and prevention and screening. Um, 
So what is the cervix? So the cervix is the neck of the uterus, literally. So anyone here who's had a child remembers that during labor, you're told, oh, you're one centimeter dilated, you're two centimeters dilated. That is the cervix that opens. It's the entry point into the uterus. That's what dilates to allow you to push out a baby. Um, and so this is the part that we're talking about. This is a part that is um, affected for this cancer. And as you can see in the picture, there's a small connection between the cervix and the vagina. So as you can imagine during intercourse, there's lots of exposure from um, sexually transmitted infections, including HPV, which we'll talk about. So HPV is human papillomavirus, which is, has been identified and known to be central to the development of cervical cancer. Um, it's detected in 99.7% of cervical cancers. And that's remarkable because we have a cancer that is caused by a virus. Unlike other cancers that you may have heard about, there's often not a, an identifiable cause. Usually it's a genetic mutation within the cell lines that causes the cells to start to over-replicate and then the cancer develops. But we know that for cervical cancer, the human papillomavirus, when a woman is exposed to it, it integrates to DNA virus that it integrates into the DNA cells of the, of the cervix. And then from there, it kind of takes over. And um, for people whose infection progresses to cancer, unfortunately, it, it takes over the cell lines and grows and over, the, over years, you know, can evolve into cervical cancer, which is extremely difficult to treat. Human papillomavirus is sexually transmitted. That's, it, that has been established. There are over 200 strains identified of this virus. It is a DNA virus. Not only is it associated with cervical cancer, it's also associated with other cancers of the genital tract. So you have vaginal cancer, anal cancer, vulva cancer, even um, penile cancer. The men, they're, they're often spared from cervical cancer and all the stuff from human papillomavirus and the full extent of its rot, because for some reason, the penis kind of is better able to clear it. So we don't see as much penile cancer as much as we see cervical cancer, but it does exist, especially anal cancer when we get into, you know, people with kind of non-mainstream sexual practices. So the virus, it's over 200 types, as I mentioned, it can cause different types of conditions depending on where in the body you're exposed to and depending on the strain that you're exposed to. For some strains of the virus can cause warts, which some people have on their fingers or, or on their knees. There's a common condition, the butcher's warts. It's usually from uh, a strain of the virus that occurs on the fingers. You also have um, HPV strain 15 and 16 that tends to cause anogenital um, cancer because it likes to attach to the genital tract. And so th these are the strains that are more implicated when we're talking about cervical cancer. HPV 16 specifically is identified in more than 70% of cancer, cancer specimens when they've actually sequenced you know, the genome. Other mucosal surfaces are affected. There, there is cervical cancer in the lung tissue. Not to, there's HPV in the lung tissue. There's HPV in oral, um, oral mucosa. And so more and more we're identifying oral cancers that are arising from HPV 16 
um, respiratory infections, especially young children. And we think if a mom had active warts at the time she gave birth, gave birth there's a small chance that the, the respiratory tract of the kid could be seeded with the virus and then they can develop respiratory infections. This is rare, but, but it's a possibility. So in some cases, when we have a mom who has extensive warts on their genitalia at the time of delivery, we often have the conversation about, you know, their route of delivery, if they would, you know, want to take the chance and deliver vaginally, or if they, you know, need to have a C-section, that way you can minimize that risk for, for, the, for the baby. So I wanted to go over a few terms as we get more into, into this talk. The cervical cancer, as I mentioned, is a malignant tumor arising from the cells of the cervix. Before you arrive at the cancer stage, there is something called carcinoma in situ, which is when the cancer itself is, is, is um, confined to the cells from which it originates. So it's still confined fully on the cervix. In some ways, you could consider like the stage before full-on cancer, like a stage before full, even though it is cancer, but it's kind of a little bit of a stage before it. Dysplasia is when you start to notice abnormal changes that are not cancer yet, but can progress to cancer. Um, the dysplasia, when a woman has dysplasia, it can take years before it progresses into cancer. And we're talking more than sometimes five, 10 years. In some cases, if you have a very um, high risk strain like the HPV 16, then the progression time is, is a bit shorter. And such women, we have to watch very closely. Oftentimes, if you had an abnormal pap smear, you would have something called a colposcopy where we, it's done in the office, it's not painful. Essentially, the physician is looking at your cervix through a microscope and to closely examine it after we've applied you know, special um, agents to allow you to see the cells a little bit closer and then identify any abnormal areas and potentially biopsy them. And biopsying those spots means removing a small sample of the tissue so that it can be looked at further to determine if we have of dysplasia we have, God forbid, is there carcinoma in situ or what you're dealing with. So this picture, I just wanted to show what, you know, can the cancer would look like. When, when you come in for a pelvic exam and you have the speculum put in into your vagina, the doctor, you know, it's looking both on the outside and on the inside of, you know, to see what the cells look like. A normal cervix should be smooth and glistening like the rest of this area. However, you can notice here, it's more wide. It looks different sometimes when we felt it on exam, it feels rock hard and solid. Um, oftentimes these areas bleed very easily. Sometimes there may be an odor. It, it often looks different than surrounding tissue. And unfortunately, when you're seeing this, this is problematic because you often have cancer. At the dysplasia stage, usually the cervix would, may still appear very normal. Like you may not see it unless you're looking through a microscope. Um, so this is um, the cancer tissue. This is the cervix itself and then the vaginal wall. Um, and this is a view that you would have in a pelvic exam when the vagina, um, the speculum is placed um, in the vagina. I wanted to briefly go over the different stages of cervical cancer. Um, stage zero is a carcinoma in situ stage where you almost have a 100% cure rate. 
at this stage. As you can see here um, at the top, I have the stages and then on the sides we have five-year survival, the stage of presentation, the percent, the stage of presentation that we that's often seen, um, the extent of the tumor is also listed here. So stage carcinoma in situ is, is more common, obviously, than the other stages. We pray that we don't see any of the stages of cervical cancer, which is why awareness is very important. But in a lot of times, many people, majority of patients would pre present at the stage one phase, which is great because as you can see, the five-year survival is over 80%, which is fantastic. And then you move on to stage two. And at stage one, the cancer is confined to the cervix itself. So it hasn't spread. Cervical cancer usually spreads out outwards. So the cancer arises in the cervix and as it grows, it takes over the cervix, it spreads down and out. And the more it spreads, the higher it goes, but it tends to spread downwards before it goes upwards. The, on the stage two disease, we have a cancer that has now extended beyond the cervix and you're getting into the, the, the sides, not into the side walls of the pelvis yet, but um, kind of a little bit past the cervix, but not down into lower part of the vagina. Then on stage three, now the disease extends into the pelvic sidewall <clears throat> and also lower into the vagina. At this point, often, you know, women would have symptoms, either an order or a bleeding or even pain, because as the cancer grows into the sides of the pelvic wall, you can develop a lot of pain. Unfortunately, stage four, which we don't ever pray to see, the cancer has extended so much that it's invaded into the bladder or the rectum, which are organs that are in close proximity to, to the cervix. Um, sorry, I just wanted to highlight the stage of presentation, this is not very common. Even cervical cancer itself is not very common. I remember in residency, I can count on one hand how many cases of cervical cancer we saw just because screening and um, early detection has gotten so well done in the US that we hardly see this, but it's still there. And then oftentimes the cases where you see it is women who haven't had any type of GYN care. And I'm talking 10, 15 years, you have women who had their last child maybe 10, 15 years ago, and that was the last time they saw a gynecologist. And then they show up 10 years later with a mass on their cervix. So such a person more likely at the time they were having children had dysplastic lesions that were not followed up. And then those lesions, unfortunately in them continue to progress to cervical cancer. Um, hardly do you see someone who is getting regular care go from regular care one year to cervical cancer the next year. Usually we're able to catch things and nip things in the bud before it ever gets to the cancer stage. So for that, I'm happy. For that, I'm glad. I don't want to spend a lot of time diagnosing cancer. I'd rather have my patient be happy and healthy. Um, Five-year survival is great for stage one, not so good for stage four. And the quality of life at this stage is very, very, it's, uh, it's very difficult. I mean, it's difficult to imagine. And for the women who have to live through it, especially in other countries, it's extremely, it's hard. The women become ostracized because they're bleeding. Sometimes they have fistulas that form where um, the, the, the urine is coming out of the vagina or stool is coming out of the vagina. So it's a terrible, terrible disease when it's left to progress. 
So how do we treat cervical cancer? I don't treat cervical cancer. I'm not a gynecologic oncologist, but the doctors who do um, often will start with what we call a staging procedure to determine the extent of the disease because then that affects what treatment is offered. Early disease, so stage zero, stage one can be treated well with a hysterectomy, um, but for higher stages, stage two, stage three, oftentimes they would treat with radiation and chemotherapy because at that point the surgery is often futile um, for those patients. Brachytherapy is another um, um, way where they use small rods that direct the radiation directly on the cervical cancer tissue. It's something that's offered here in the US. I can't speak for other countries or what, what is offered, but it's some, it definitely has made treatment for higher stage cancers you know, more, a little bit easier and more successful with better outcomes. So who, what causes, what are the risk factors for cervical cancer? Who can, what kind of activity or what kind of behavior increases your risk of getting cervical cancer? So we have two categories. So you have HPV related and non-HPV related. The HPV we know, and we think that uh, because of sexual activity, early onset of sexual activity, having multiple sexual partners, having high risk sexual partners, especially partners who have sex, men who assuming a heterosexual woman who has a partner, unfortunately for her, the partner has sex with men, such a person is at increased risk because often such partners carry, you know, certain diseases that can bring it back to the woman who is unassuming and doesn't know in this, in this situation. Being exposed to previous STIs, such as sexually transmitted infections, such as herpes, chlamydia, and the thought process again has to do with, you know, multiple sexual partners having higher sexual behavior, where you're not using condoms or not using protection, um, that increases your risk overall. And then this is interesting, where early age at first birth, so women who have their first child at less than 20 years old. Take this one maybe with a grain of salt because it, it depends on the population. Now there are populations where women marry early and they're with that same partner for the rest of their life. However, if you, in the US, this particular has to do with, you know, younger women who haven't children early and then progressing to have multiple other sexual partners in their lifetime. As you can imagine, such a person is likely to be exposed to different strains of the virus, other strains of the virus, because the more sexual partners you have, the more that you can be exposed to other strains of the virus, and especially the high risk strains, which, you know, those are more difficult for your body to clear. Non-HPV related risk factors, such as low socioeconomic status, non-white race, and these risk factors are for the cancer itself. Everyone gets exposed to HPV, but who progresses the cancer? The non-white race has probably has to do with access to care. Unfortunately, people in marginalized communities or lower socioeconomic status may not have the same access to care, maybe due to lack of insurance, finances, work requirements. They may not be able to seek the care they need when they need the care. And oftentimes they're seeking the care late in the process when the, the situation is already escalated um, to more difficult circumstances. Cigarette smoking has a role to play. We know cigarette smoking over time decreases your immune system and affects your body's ability to fight infections, including HPV. And that's where that comes in. 
there is some family history, genetic um, propensity for cervical cancer. Studies were done showing that even when the sexual behavior has been controlled for women whose family members have had cervical cancer at, at higher risk than the population to develop cervical cancer. So for some of them, it's important to offer a more aggressive screening, you know, spend a lot of time educating on sexual behavior because that could make a difference for that person. Oral contraceptive use is another risk that is interesting. I was surprised to find this, but it, it is true. It, the, the, the studies showed that the longer time of being on oral contraceptives, there is some association with increased risk for cervical cancer. And then the final point was circumcision. So women who have sex with men who are not circumcised have a higher risk for cervical cancer. And I think that has to do with um, the higher risk of sexually transmitted infections such as HPV, which is sexually transmitted, HIV, which is also sexually transmitted. Studies in South Africa when HIV was very rampant have showed that in South Africa, certain populations do not have high rate of circumcision. And so they found that the women had higher risk of acquiring H HIV when their men weren't circumcised as opposed to women who were having sex with men who were circumcised. So the same thing plays out for HPV and cervical cancer. And then the final point I wanted to mention for HPV um, related risk factors is for people who are immunocompromised, of which HIV is the number one condition that um, causes immunosuppression that affects your overall immune system on how it functions especially in its ability to clear the virus in that way increases the risk of a woman having persistent HPV infection that could then progress to dysplasia and eventually cancer. So how can we prevent, how can we prevent this? Thankfully, cervical cancer is a cancer that can be prevented by vaccination. There are vaccines that are available now um, you can start as early as from age 11 to 12. You can start at age nine and both males and females should be vaccinated because us women are not having sex with ourselves. We're having sex with men. And when you have a heterosexual relationship that's when you're gonna be more exposed to um, HPV. So if the men are also vaccinated and they're protected then the girls are less likely to be exposed. So you can start as early as 11 to vaccinate. And here in the, the US, your pediatrician will talk to you about it when your child is of age and will offer you the vaccine. Um, some years ago, the vaccine came under fire. People felt like, oh, it's um, you're telling the children by vaccinating them for HPV, you're giving them the go ahead to have promiscuous sexual behavior. But the, the it's actually contrary to the point because if, just like you vaccinate your child for chicken pox, um, smallpox, measles, rubella, these are all viral conditions. HPV is another virus and you're just offering them protection because they could be exposed to HPV by the, by the love of their life. You don't have to have um, multiple sexual partners. You could be that one person who you love and marry that it exposes you to HPV. But if you are vaccinated, then you're less likely to have you know, um, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened to my screen. Hmm. Okay, 
But the other point I wanted to mention on that slide that I don't have anymore is the you can vaccinate from 11 to 12 or 9 to 12. The vaccine recently, I believe two years ago, the FDA expanded to women who are older. The key is to vaccinate before a child becomes sexually active because then they're already protected from, um, they have antibodies ready to fight the virus. But you can also vaccinate people who are already sexually active, which is why the age was extended to age 45. So if you have a woman who is, is interested we still offer the vaccine up until age 45. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention for prevention was education on proper sexual behavior. Nothing is wrong with delaying age of intercourse. Nothing is wrong with having, in being chased. Nothing is wrong with having low risk sexual behavior, having sex with as few partners as possible. All those things protect your health and limit your chance of being exposed to, to HPV. Then what are the signs and symptoms for cervical cancer? We have um, early cancer, especially stage zero, stage one, you may be completely asymptomatic. So no, 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 no symptoms. And asymptomatic is a word that has become so common and popular now as we're dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, as we know, a lot of people can be carriers of the virus and have absolutely no symptoms and they can go on to spread it to somebody else who then goes on to develop very severe illness and could potentially die. Same with HPV, the virus itself hardly causes any, um, any problems that a, a woman would notice um, if, when they're exposed. But when you have your pap smears regularly, those changes can be picked up and then, you know, kind of taking care of. When cancer itself is there and it's progressed, you can see a visible lesion on the cervix. Like I said, sometimes the cervix is nodular in appearance. Some women report abnormal intermittent bleeding between um, their periods, bleeding after they've gone through menopause, bleeding after intercourse. All those things are signs that, you know, something is different. Sometimes there's a, an order or an abnormal discharge that you just can't get rid of. And then unfortunately, it, when the disease has advanced, you can have pain, you can have blood and urine, women can feel pelvic, pelvic pressure when they are um, defecating. Sometimes you can have stool coming out of the vagina or urine coming out of the vagina. And so, the, you know, those things are hard. At that point, usually it's hard to miss or at that point, even the, the sick person knows that there is a, a real issue going on. But I pray that no one ever gets to this point. I pray that the minute, you know, if you are getting your regular GYN, gynecologic checkups, your yearly visits, we don't ever have to talk about even seeing a lesion or having bleeding in between um, set, be, between periods of bleeding in between sex. Postmenopausal bleeding, bleeding after menopause is important to mention because in our community, sometimes we tend to minimize or minimize symptoms. So you can have a woman who's gone through menopause at the age of 50 or 51 and had no bleeding. And then when they turn 60, they start to have spotted, but then it's, it's really light. And then they make nothing out of it and feel like, well, it's nothing. It's just one day you went away. Unfortunately, bleeding after menopause it's not good, no matter how little, no matter how light, this absolutely needs to be evaluated. So if you, if our moms, anyone who's on this talk, you've gone through menopause and you're bleeding, please, please, please talk to your gynecologist. In most cases, it's not a problem, but in some cases, 
it could be cancer, especially uterine cancer. And so you want to get that evaluated so that it can be treated before it ever gets to the cancer stage. Okay, so this was that. Um, somehow the slide came back. I talked about ways to prevent and safe sex practices. People who smoke, you know, to stop smoking because that plays a role. Um, and so how do we screen? The primary way to screen for cervical cancer is by a pap smear. The pap smear was invented by a Greek doctor, Dr. Papa Nicolaou in the 1920s. Can you believe how far, how long ago that was? But the technology has evolved over the years. The way he did it in the 1920s is not how it's done now. A lot of it is highly mechanized and highly, um, you know, there's a lot of technology application, but also we have learned so much about the virus and how the cells on the cervix are affected that there is pretty, pretty good um, identification of when there's a problem and when, when there isn't. But essentially during a pap smear on this picture, you can see a speculum, which is a small instrument that we use is inserted into the vagina, essentially helps to separate the walls of the vagina. And then um, a brush, is used to collect cells from the cervix, both from the outside of the cervix and a little bit in the inside of the cervix. And a lot of women feel very antsy about having their pelvic exam or getting their physical done. I want to encourage you, this is not painful. If you are very um, anxious about it, you can let your doctor know at the visit that this is something that causes your anxiety so they can either use a smaller speculum if possible, use lots of lubricant, or, you know, most of us are gentle. No one wants to shove a speculum in your vagina and make it uncomfortable for you. But, you know, if this creates a lot of anxiety, having a discussion with a doctor before the exam um, is begun can help you know, make it more, more pleasant. And, and no one finds it pleasant. It's always slightly uncomfortable. Even me, when I have to have it done, it's not the thing I'm wanting to do, but it's something that we have to do because it saves lives. It absolutely, absolutely saves lives. So when the cells are collected, it's usually sent in a liquid medium to the lab where it's processed. So we have pathologists, histopathologists who look at the cells and can determine based on the shape, if there is um, HPV changes, if this warrants for the evaluation, and then the results will be sent back to your doctor who would say, oh, your pap smear was negative, awesome. And so you're good. Or your pap smear was slightly abnormal, we need to do X, Y, and Z. So what are the screening guidelines? Um, we more recently, I, I want to say in the last, um, I think 2012, 2013, the guidelines were revised. Um, and then I think 2015, 2016 was revised again. But now the guidelines that are recommended are you do not start screening younger than age 21. But for women who are age 21 to 29, they could have their screening done by pap smear alone every three years. It doesn't stop you from getting your pap smear done annually if you want it. Your most people with insurance are still being covered. If you're paying out of pocket, that is definitely covered because you're paying for it. But if you are average risk where you are in a stable relationship with one partner, you could space yourself out to three years. 
you should still see a gynecologist annually for an exam to make sure that there are no other issues. Because when you have your GYN exam, you're not just having um, a pap smear done. Typically, at least if you see me, the way that I do it, we talk about your whole health. We start with any issues that you have that you wanted to discuss, be it a sexual complaint or be it just um, discomfort. Is it your periods? Do you need contraception? Are you planning pregnancy? We talk about everything you want to talk about. And then we talk about preventive care, depending on your age. So for my patients who are aged 21 to 29, we can space out their pap smear every three years, depending on their situation. And if you told me, you know, I'm having fun, I'm dating around, and I may or may not have sex with the people I date, then you know, maybe we should screen you a little bit closer than every three years. Because sometimes you do pick up abnormalities that change drastically between one year to another. But we usually do not pick up, we go from normal to cancer the next year. It usually doesn't happen that, that way. Most HPV that women, when you're exposed to HPV, most people are able to clear the infection in 12 months. Um, that's within a year. So, but when you have an abnormal pap smear that's persistent, for two years, three years, then you have to, oftentimes we talk about intervening through other ways. So if you're age 30 to 65, you can do your pap smears every three years, or you can do a pap smear with HPV testing every five years, or you can do HPV testing alone every five years. The last option, I mention it because it is part of the guidelines, but I don't think anyone does it like this in the US. And I personally wouldn't feel comfortable for my mom or my sisters or my loved ones doing it this way because five years is just too long to do just an HPV test alone. Now, co-testing is awesome. It's fantastic. Again, in this age group, a lot of times people are married, they're in a stable relationship. You could do that. Um, but if you also wanted to have your passmeres done annually, absolutely go, go ahead, do that. There's nothing wrong with that. And that would be the safest, safest, safest option. But if you're in an average risk situation, you're in average risk category, where you're in a stable relationship, there's no, there, there are no issues with infidelity, there's no issues with multiple sexual partners, then you really could space out every three years and be fine. And especially if you've had normal pap smears in the past. Screening is recommended even if a person reports sexual abstinence. So this one is big because, you know, in certain populations and certain communities, admitting to being sexually active can be a difficult conversation. It could be regarded as a taboo. And so sometimes you have people who are over the age of 21 claim that they're sexually abstinent, whereas they're not. Or you can have victims of rape, incest, who cannot admit to their sexual activity because of the way it's being done and perpetrated on them. And so such patients, yes, they're not having sex of their full consent, but they are sexually active and they're being exposed. So usually from a woman who's older than 21 and they see me, if they're truly sexually abstinent, I give them the option to not do a pap smear, but typically I would recommend it and we'll go ahead and screen them. And I, I always say, you know, you're not sexually active, so your pap smear should be negative. And so far for anyone who's been truly sexually active, I haven't had their pap smear be anything but negative. However, we have to remember that sometimes there's more that meets the eye. And so when people, it's rape, incest, or um, maybe religious issues where they cannot to sexual activity, they should still be offered cervical cancer screening. 
um, if you're immunocompromised and you had HIV or some other condition where you have to be on, where you had to be on medications that suppress your immune system, then potentially, and you've had maybe an abnormal pap here and there, you may not want to screen every three years. You might want to have your pap here and done a little bit more frequently than that. And especially if you are having, not necessarily having multiple sexual partners, but if you're not in a stable relationship and there's a chance that you could have a new sexual partner, then probably doing your pap smears annually will be more, um, would be wiser for such a person. So I wanted to go over certain scenarios where the screening guidelines may be a little bit different. So for someone who's had a hysterectomy, so hysterectomy, a lot of people talk about, oh, what is, well, I had a total hysterectomy. A total hysterectomy in the, in the full explanation of the word means removing the cervix and the uterus. So the vagina itself ends in a blind pouch. It's closed off at the top. When you've had your cervix removed, you could discontinue doing pap smears because your cervix is no longer there. One, two, if you've always had normal pap smears preceding your hysterectomy, then you could discontinue screening altogether. So that's why I use the word may, because it does not apply to everybody. If you've had a hysterectomy, but you know, a few years down the line, you had some abnormal pap smears, or you know, you had a condition where you had and needed sorry somebody and you had you know you had a, a a condition where you had to have a procedure on your cervix because of an abnormal path you should not discontinue screening because you still could develop you know changes at the vagina could, that could have been caused from the previous exposure from hpv now a partial hysterectomy or subtotal hysterectomy is when the uterus alone is removed and the cervix is left in place. It's not as common now, but we still do it in some cases if a hysterectomy is done under an emergency or if you know someone had a very difficult procedure and to minimize their further risk of complication, we could choose to stop the procedure and leave the cervix in place. So in some cases when it's done that way, because your cervix is still in place, such a person should continue to have their um, pap smears following the screening guidelines based on age. Um, in a hysterectomy, either partial or total, the ovaries in the fallopian tubes may or may not be removed. So a lot of times what I find is when people say, oh, I had a partial hysterectomy, they're actually referring to the fact that their ovaries were not removed. When we do hysterectomies, we try to keep the ovaries in place, even if a woman is, you know, has passed the age of menopause. In certain cases, you, you would remove the ovaries, depending on what's going on. And in, in those cases, the patients are often told your ovaries are removed. But in the majority of cases, the ovaries are kept in place. The fallopian tubes, more recently, we have started to remove at um, hysterectomies. And hit, recently, I'm saying in the last six to eight years, because um, we there's studies that came out saying that some ovarian cancer actually arises within the fallopian tubes. And so for a woman who's undergoing hysterectomy, the, the tubes are not providing any benefit. They're not going to do the job that they do, which is usually to carry um, the egg from the ovary and become and be a site for, for um, fertilization of the egg and the sperm. So once you've removed the uterus, the, the, the fallopian tubes are essentially 
not doing anything. They're essentially useless. And so oftentimes we would remove it at a hysterectomy um, because to further reduce a woman's chance of developing ovarian cancer. So now that you've been convinced to get your pap smears, I like getting my pap smears or I don't like getting my pap smears, but when can I stop? When can I stop doing my pap smears? I think it's a great question. It depends on age. You don't have to stop, but you can usually, the age that we quote is 65. So by 65, if you've had normal pap smears, you could discontinue doing the paps at that point. Um, do I have patients who are older than 65 and want to continue screening? Absolutely. And even if you were older than 65 and you wanted to space it out, totally your choice. But it depends on your situation. It depends on your age. It depends on have you had a hysterectomy. It depends on your prior history in terms of your pap smears. It depends on are you going to be having new sexual partners? Because sometimes at 65, people are in different relationships. Um, believe it or not, we do see sexually transmitted infections. And so for such a person who has a cervix over 65 having new sexual partners, we should probably continue to do your, your pap smears. Most people at 65 are married and they're with their, you know, that's their final destination in terms of sexual partners, but you know, sometimes it's not. And so, you know, that needs to be taken into account. So talking with your gynecologist, talking with your physician and um, being upfront about these things can help guide your decision on when to stop screening for cervical cancer. Um, I also noted the country where you live in because this matters, for example, Australia, has a cutoff of 74 years old. So they recommend stopping cervical cancer screening at 74 years old, whereas the US and the UK and a lot of the other um, kind of Western nations say to stop around 65. So it kind of depends on where you are. Obviously in, in Nigeria, we don't have any established guidelines. We're lucky if you know people are getting screened. So I won't get into you know, when you should stop screening, unfortunately for our hometown. Who does not need a pap smear? So women who are younger than 21 um, do not need a pap smear. And this, this I absolutely agree with. Some women who are over 65 do not need a pap smear. Some people who are over 65 and have had hysterectomies do not need a pap smear. Some people who've had hyst hysterectomies and they're 45 or 55, depending on their situations, do not need a pap smear um, anymore. And so it becomes very situation dependent and um, as a shared decision that is made between the doctor and the patient to decide on stopping screening if you're over you know, 65. But younger than 21 should not have a pap smear. Um, and we know that for women 21 to 29, they're more likely to clear their infections. They're less likely for the infections to progress into um, high grade dysplasia that could then become cancer. And so for those women, even when they have an abnormal pap, we still tailor their, 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 their management very differently because of they have the age factor, which is an advantage to them. Um, and so we try to avoid very invasive procedures because they're more likely to still clear any infections that they have. So what do you do in a place that may, that's not in the US? So for us, you know, physicians, it's harder. So I use the term resource limited settings because I don't like 
the term third world countries or non-developed countries, because every country is developed in their own right, um, but the resources are not the same. And so for, for those areas, you don't necessarily have established guidelines where you have women 21 to 29, you come every three years, or you don't have necessarily the public health awareness of, oh, I need to get my pap smears done, or you don't even have the access sometimes that, oh, well, I can go here and get my pap smear done all the time. Sometimes you have NGOs that offer screening for a period of time, and then a few months they're gone. And so for the people who didn't come at that point, they have to wait till the next time the NGO is there again. So for such, for such areas, the, the term that's used is you screen and you treat. So they visualize ways where you, because you don't have the luxury of collecting the pap smear, sending it to the lab, having it reviewed, because some of the patients you see, you may not see again. And so you screen and you treat. So oftentimes they don't necessarily do a pap smear like we would do here, but they, they apply acetic acid onto the cervix. And while the trained clinician is looking at the cervix, they can tell, okay, this looks abnormal, we need to do X, Y, and Z. Oh, this looks abnormal, or this looks fine. You know, we can leave it alone. So all of those things um, play a role. Oftentimes it's treated with cryotherapy, which is when um, it's using cold, cold um, air with, that's been cooled with liquid nitrogen. The abnormal cells or the abnormal areas on the cervix are, identified and kind of kind of blasted away, if you may. The goal is to identify abnormal lesions and treat them right then and then because you don't have the luxury that the women will come back or that um, that they may, or that, you know, you may see them again. And the last thing you want is to see a lesion and by the time it's seen again, it's progressed to cancer. I don't think anybody deserves to have that. So what if your pap smear is abnormal? What, what happens? So if your pap smear is abnormal, do not panic. You don't have cervical cancer. You don't have a death sentence. Um, sometimes your doctor would repeat pap smear to see what it shows. Sometimes they may add on an HPV test to see if the HPV test is positive or negative. Um, but in a lot of cases with an abnormal pap smear, you have to have a colposcopy. Colposcopy is a procedure that I described earlier in the talk where we looking through a coposcope and a special microscope designed for the cervix. We look closely at the cervix and see if there are any abnormal areas. Any abnormal areas are typically biopsied and those biopsies are then further evaluated to determine if you need something like a leap. So loop electrosurgical excision procedure is when a piece of the cervix, usually the part that contains the abnormal areas is cut out. Like I described, cervical cancer grows from, it grows outwards. So it starts at one spot and then kind of affects the surrounding cells. So if you can, through a colposcopy, identify the abnormal area, then with a leap or a cone biopsy, you can cut out that area and then leave the normal tissue behind. And so uh, such a woman, especially if someone is young, they haven't had children, they still have their cervix to serve them that purpose. Cryotherapy in the US has kind of fallen out of favor because you're not removing the abnormal areas. You're treating it with the cold air, um, cold pressurized air, which destroys the cells 
is similar to laser therapy, but milder than laser therapy, but it, it doesn't get rid of the cells altogether. So over the years, most people have evolved to doing leaps or cone biopsies. I personally, in my practice, would offer a leap or cone biopsy. I don't do cryotherapy um, because just the benefit is more with the leap um, procedure. And then oftentimes you would have to follow up closely. So sometimes we say, come back in six months and repeat the pap smears over a period to make sure that if they have become normal and they've gone back to being negative, that it remains, it remains negative during that closed follow-up period. But another key aspect to you know, having an abnormal pap smear is understanding why it was abnormal. Did you have a new sexual partner? Then if you did, it's possible that that new partner has exposed you to a new strain of HPV that you may not have been exposed to before. And that's why your pap smear is abnormal now. But it could also be because a previously, um, a strain that you had been exposed to before has now kind of resurfaced, maybe because your immune system is not as robust as it needs to be. And so the virus hasn't has had a chance to proliferate within your cells and it's causing your pathways to be abnormal. But the good, good news remains that most infections are transient in that your body often clears them, but perchance you do not clear them, we can intervene with a colposcopy, with a leap, before we get to the cervical cancer stage. In some cases that it's been difficult you know, to manage or the typical management algorithm has been applied and the patient still turns up with abnormal um, PAPs, you could be referred to a, a gynecologic oncologist. And so this is a, a trained obstetrician gynecologist who is specialized in cancer care. So they specialize in treating all the cancers in the, of the female genital tract. So cervical cancer, ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, vaginal cancer, vulvar cancer. Um, so they kind of are well-versed in that and they can offer the treatment that's needed. If someone has persistently abnormal pap smears, you've been dealing with it for the past two, three years, it's not clearing, you don't have any high-risk sexual behavior. So sometimes you could proceed with a leap, even though the the even though the changes could still be low risk. For example, when we get a pap smear, the results can be negative or you can have low grade changes or you can have high grade changes or you can have abnormal changes that are in between. So it's usually termed abnormal cells of undetermined significance. Um, and it could favor higher grade changes or it could favor just, we don't know if this is bad or if it's not. And so when you fall in that in-between range, you know usually we'll do a colposcopy, especially if your HPV test is positive. If you had like a high grade lesion, usually it, doing an HPV test is not as important because you have a high grade change. And so we definitely need to look at the cervix through a colposcopy and biopsy any abnormal areas at that point. Um, so, and um, a little bit about my practice. We're located in Snellville with hospital privileges at Eastside Medical Center, which is also in Snellville. Um, uh, my practice has been serving the community for over 40 years. The first woman who um, was an OBGYN in Gwinnett County worked in our practice. She has passed on, may her soul rest in peace, but the practice has had thankfully longevity and not to toot my own horn, but really we, we provide good care. We pride ourselves in practicing evidence-based medicine. 
We do what is right for every patient every single time. We strive to do what is right for every patient every single time. And so we deliver babies, we care for women from adolescent years through childbearing years through menopause and beyond and you know whatever you need we offer so I know not everyone is in Georgia and people are from in different parts of the world listening to this talk but um but that's that's what we're doing so at a local level I I feel privileged to be able to care for women um and we can definitely I can answer any questions that anyone has about so so Feel free to type it in. <laughs> and um, just, okay, thank you. People are saying thank you for the wonderful presentation. This is from Dr. Baba. She's a dermatologist in Nigeria. Oh, thank you. So, thank you so much. Yes. Any question? Alaikum Can you hear me? Oh, yes. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Yes. Okay, good. This is Sister Zahra, and I'll be very quick because I'm driving. So I have to ask my question, if you don't mind, Dr. Rahma, too, because I'm driving, okay? Yeah, that's good. That's fine. Okay, wonderful. Uh, yes, first, I just definitely want to say the presentation was absolutely wonderful and extremely informative. And uh, Sister, all your accolades, uh, they just don't even give you enough credit for all the wonderful, beneficial knowledge that you have shared with us today with Women's Health First. We are very grateful, Sister, as well as for you, as well as Sister Mohammed. Um, quickly, I just wanted to ask you, in case I missed it, I hope I didn't, but I wanted to know what is the earliest age uh, that a young woman should have a pap smear? And is it safe to say that for young girls who are not yet sexually active, that they should not? have a pap smear? Okay, that was a great question. And yes, so it depends. The youngest age is 21. So even if a, a girl is sexually active before 21, they don't need a pap smear until they turn 21. But they need a pelvic exam. They need to see a gynecologist. So the question I get a lot from my patients who have younger girls or they have teenage girls, oh, when can I bring them to see you? When can I bring them to see you? It depends. If you're having conversations with your daughter and she is sexually active, then she needs to see me. And I pray that they're not sexually active. And I pray that our daughters delay intercourse for as long as possible. But if you if your daughter is sexually active, then they need to see me. Because often with those visits, what I spend time talking about is safe sex practices. I try to make sure that the girls aren't being coerced into having sex. They're not being raped. They're not, being, they're not having sex against their will. And then provide education on sexually transmitted diseases. Because as you know, depending on which part of the country you're in or depending on the school system, sex education is so variable in the US. It's a taboo topic. It's highly politicized, some people want it, some people don't. And so some of our girls are not getting that education at home or in school. So as mothers, you educate at home, you have these conversations with your daughter so they can come to you and that they can also be honest with you when they're actually having sex. That way you can allow them to seek care. Because at that age, we do sexual transmitted infection screening if they're having sex, even though I always, always encourage them to use a condom every single time please use a condom every single time i think um, i think i did i think i did mean 
pelvic exam, not pass me. I think I, I think I exactly. the pelvic so, exam. Yes. Right. <laughs> so yes. So pelvic exam, the youngest age it depends. When a girl is sexually active, then they need to see me. I'm younger than that. If they're having any issues with their periods, they may not be sexually active. If they're having issues with their periods, which comes up and the pediatrician is not comfortable handling it, they often will refer you to a GYN. But the time to bring them in usually is when they start having sex. But a lot of moms would bring their daughters into and to see us usually before they go up to college. So 17, 18 is very common. It breaks my heart when I see a sexually active 14, 16 year, 14 or 15 year old, but but it happens. And you know, no judgment or anything. But yes, you know, I do need to see them. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you kindly, doctor. You're welcome. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Zara, for an amazing question too. Um, we have um, Dr. Baba with her hands. She raised her hand. You could unmute yourself and ask. I think you want to ask a question. Hello. Good evening. Good evening. Yeah, everyone. Nice to see you, Dr. Mohammed. <laughs> Um, this was indeed a very insightful presentation. I know that I have a question because I think it was quite um, explicit and I followed from the very beginning. Thank you so much. But just that um, I think we should maybe next time when we're having this kind of seminar, maybe it should come on early or maybe the notification so that we can um, disseminate information because the target I think should be the community. I tried to forward the link to some of doctor colleagues because maybe they are more easily accessible to me. But mm -hmm. all the same, I think the community is even where we need to push this awareness program to, especially in this part of the world. So thank you so much. It was indeed a nice presentation. Thank you. I, I agree 100%. And I, um, you know, for us in the medical field, we get it. But you're right. You know, who needs this information is everybody else who may not get it or who may not have access or frankly, who may not be thinking about it. And so, you know, I'm not involved in the women's first, but I'm happy to be as involved as is needed. I'm happy to come back and talk about this again or any other topics. And, you know, Ramatu was saying, I took time and sister Nahila said, I took time. This is nothing. It gives no. me so much <laughs> to be women and offer any help or any information yes. that I can and impart knowledge but and then because sometimes you know you could be in an area where you may not have a woman of color or a doctor who you feel completely comfortable with so you got everybody at health first you, you Ramatu has my information I I'm happy to chat I'm happy to answer questions I'm happy to offer second opinions when things come up Yes, absolutely, and, uh, absolutely. Another thing yes. I would like to say is that uh, we're comfortable, we love you, and we want to come because of this presentation. And the option that you're giving that uh, the spectrum will be smaller because I'm yes. the kind of person that I don't want to go there. Nothing to be unsaid. <laughs> so <laughs> we will be coming. So what one question I have is that what did you have? You know, a lot of our community also, you know, in terms of uh, Insurance. Uh, did you your clinic will offer some sliding fee or absolutely? That's number we one. Have, um, mm -hmm. We have self pay rates that are actually not as expensive as you think. 
for, for everything. So oftentimes, if you are coming in with a problem visit that is charged at a certain rate, and there are a lot of things that I could do in the office, when the prices start to go up is if I had to do labs, I needed to send things out. So those bills may come directly from the lab, but for things that are done in the office that I can handle prescribed medication, oftentimes your fee is between 50 to $100. Now for a female exam, it's a little bit over $100 for like the yearly GYN exam. So people think that going to the doctor, and the same goes for even seeing your primary care doctor to have um, your, your annual physical. They're not so, so, so out of reach. And if you came and cost was an issue and, you know, couldn't, I mean, we can always help direct and guide you. I don't want access to ever be the issue because there's truly programs, there's truly opportunities as a matter of getting in in the right place and then being directed. So assuming you saw me and you needed a service, but then my fees or in what I could offer was not going to be conducive for what you can afford, then usually I can point you in the right direction of where you can obtain some of those services for less price. Yes, I'm in private practice. Unfortunately, we're not pro bono, even though we do lend our time um, in certain, do, certain pro bono aspects. But the practice and the business does require some revenue influx to remain afloat. And so for that, we do not offer any free services, but some of the services are truly not as expensive as you think. Um, we have a question. Someone is asking, thank you so much. Um, there's a question about bladder prolapse and the person is asking, can Kegel help if it's a lot, if the prolapse is like a, 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 of a greater grade? Really? So I know it's not exactly cervical cancer, but oh, I no. know you guys do <laughs> bladder prolapse and stuff yeah. like that, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. So pelvic organ prolapse is a whole other topic by itself and I'm happy to speak about that. The answer to the question is yes and no. Kegel exercises, pelvic floor exercises will prevent progression of the prolapse, but it will not reverse a prolapse that has already occurred. So the time to do Kegels is now before you develop a prolapse. The time to do Kegels is when you're pregnant, before you get pregnant, after you've had a baby. It's to do it before the prolapse has occurred because then you're supporting your pelvic floor muscles um, and strengthening them. Everybody goes to the gym or talks about going to the gym, you strengthen your abs, you know, you, you, you work out your muscles. The pelvic floor, they don't get a lot of love. They don't get worked out. So that's where the cue exercises come in. By strengthening them, it helps support your bladder, your vagina, your rectum. And so they're less likely to prolapse and come downwards. If a prolapse has already occurred, it will not make you go away, but it will prevent it from progressing. Thank you so much. <laughs> Any more questions? Oh, well, uh, Dr. Mohamed, we have to uh, get ready to wrap it up right? because we will be keeping you out forever here. <laughs> you, <laughs> because yeah. we love it. It's a really a fabulous mm. presentation, amazing presentation, especially having a poor doctor out of his clinic and mm. working, you know, <laughs> and bring them. So we cannot really thank you enough, uh, you know, for being here 
for us. We really, really appreciate you. Thank you, you for having me. Thank you. We would like to welcome you back again and, and again. You know, anytime. <laughs> this is an amazing, amazing presentation. Thank you. May God continue to bless you and provide you with the ability to give you more knowledge and then, you know, an ability to serve our community. Thank you so very much. Yes, absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. It's such a pleasure. It's thank you so much. And thank you everyone for coming on. And um, we would be having more. Um, we're planning more. We have some things in the pipeline with Dr. Uju coming back to talk about more stuff. And then I also would have a few that I would um, That's awesome. personally be present. Thank Absolutely. you so much. Have <laughs> a blessed you. day. Have a blessed night wherever you are. <laughs> Thank you. And a, and a blessed week. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye bye. Bye bye. bye, -bye. bye, -bye. <laughs>